the Professionally Speaking Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Professionally Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Warner, and with me today is another special guest. We have George Pesok. Sorry, Pesok. I screwed it up already. Uh, <laughs> Chief Legal Officer at the HBAR Foundation. George, thanks for coming on. Well, thanks for having me, Ryan. Really excited to be here. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you're definitely one of the guests I was excited to to pursue and to have on because so many of our listeners have been asking about the legal sphere, especially when it pertains to crypto. There's a lot of overlap happening there. And I mean, who better than the chief legal officer to join to join us today? Well, that makes me feel great. Uh, never in a did I think that being a lawyer was going to be an exciting thing that people wanted to hear about. Normally, it's uh, keep me in a back room by the books and that's it. No, no, today we're going to dig some some inside information out of you. We're we're going to definitely see what's underneath the covers here. Well, that's what I'm here for. So thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. So first question for us. Let's let's tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. What do you do typically day to day? What's uh, what's your life like at the HBAR Foundation? Right. Uh, great question. So I, as the chief legal officer of the HBAR Foundation, I am responsible for everything that legal at the foundation. So I have to manage our risk. I have to manage our agreements. I have to manage our employees. Uh, just everything that touches on legal, I, I'm in charge of. So how many people do, would you say that you oversee on a regular basis? Yeah, so I wouldn't say that I oversee them. I, I guess like the, the HBAR Foundation, I think we're sitting at somewhere around 37 uh, employees and contractors. Mm. Uh, so I, I consider myself a service provider, right? So um, everybody else uh, that has legal needs within the organization, they come to me. And if everybody's happy and, and nobody has legal needs, that means I've done my job. Oh, okay. So do you uh, see yourself, do you have to like triage uh, issues as they come in to the direct them to the right person? A hundred percent. So I, I recently joined the, the HBAR Foundation. It was, this is my second month. And what happened is that there was a, when I joined, there was significant pent up demand for legal services. Normally you have a period of uh, integration. Day one, I started getting slammed with requests from a bunch of different folks from in different, you know, I was getting text messages. I was getting Slack messages, emails with legal requests. And I didn't, first of all, I didn't know all the players. So I didn't know who necessarily was sending me the request and nobody was giving me a deadline. Uh, so <laughs> the first thing I had to do was kind of create some structure, uh, find out who my clients are, because that's what I consider all the, uh, all the employees and then figure out when these due dates are. And that's how I would triage it. Obviously some things take precedent depending on exposure to the, into the business, whether it be dollar amount, uh, regulatory risk or litigation risk. But that's that the first thing I needed to do was kind of siphon it and create a centralized repository for all legal requests. Wow, that sounds like I mean, maybe for you, it's just like second nature, but it sounds like you were kind of uh, put in a situation where you had to find your bearings rather quickly and start to situate yourself. I, yeah, I describe it as kind of like building a plane as you're flying it while drinking from a fire hydrant. <laughs> sounds like an, a great experience. It's intense. It's intense. But being in the crypto industry, it, I, I guess it's what I crave. Yeah. And you found now, uh, you said you're two months in. Have you ironed out a lot of the a lot of the workflow and you figured out a lot of the parameters? 
Yeah, you'd be surprised with a little bit of, uh, of structure, the the benefit that you could derive from it. It's, as soon as I put that in place, now it's, I can easily see you know what tasks I have outstanding, the the due dates, the values, and it's kind of like I can pick and choose, and everybody's happy, right? And, and because there's there's no chaos anymore. Yeah, I can <laughs> just as you're saying that I can imagine now the fire hose coming at you with we need this and what about that? Have you done this yet? And who who do I go to for what? You're like kind of like lost at sea a little bit. Well, just keeping track of it all is is a job in in and of itself. Oh yeah, that's true. You probably get like a hundred emails a day and and phone calls and everything else. Yeah, well, that's the thing. It's not just so when you one thing that I've realized every time I join a new uh, organization or a new law firm is that I, the first thing I have to do is get used to the new tech, technology, right? How does everybody communicate? What yeah. systems are they using? Imagine not knowing the systems, but yet getting blasted on the systems. Forgetting <laughs> <laughs> to check a system that you're new to, uh, it, it was it was a mess. It was a mess. <laughs> well, I'm glad that it's greener uh, greener pastures ahead. That there there's you know bright lights ahead. So that that sounds great. When you were younger, did you foresee yourself getting into this line of work, or did you have another like when I guess I'm asking like when you were a kid, did you always want to be in law and and kind of digital assets and crypto law, or did you have another idea in mind? Uh, no, I, I always knew I wanted to be a lawyer. And I, I suppose the follow up question to that would be like, why? So so I've never, I, when I decided I want to be a lawyer, I never had, I had never actually met a lawyer. I just knew, uh, so I, you know, I was born in the Dominican Republic, came to the US very young. I have a traditional uh, Dominican mother who always wanted to have a lawyer, a doctor, uh, or a lawyer or a doctor, you know, as a, as a child. So I was like, wow, I don't like seeing blood, the least lawyer. So very young, I said, I'm going to be a lawyer. Didn't have anything more than that, uh, pushing me towards it. It just, I, I, I suppose I just lucked out that I ended up in a, in, in a profession that I love. Wow. So you, you just kind of thought, oh, I'll just try this lawyer up because the doctor's not for me. And then along the way, you're like, actually, I'm, I'm pretty good at this and I enjoy this pretty much. Right. Look, I, I figured I, I must have thought I must have told myself when I was like 11 or 12 that I wanted to be a lawyer. And I figured even if I don't end up liking being a lawyer, having gotten all these degrees that you're required to do and taking all those steps to become a lawyer mm-hmm. would have given me the option to then pivot to something else. I, I, I didn't know if I was going to like being a lawyer, but I knew that that was the path that would lead to the most opportunities for me. Oh, wow. So you were like a practical thinker, even as, as a child. Right. So, yeah, I, 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 so I played chess a lot, my chess club, went to tournaments on the weekends and all that stuff. And I really do think that that uh, helped me develop kind of my, the way I think about things. It's just not only thinking about the immediate step that I have to take, but rather where is this going to lead and thinking, where do I want to be seven steps from now? Right. Well, that's, I mean, that's a great skill to have. And I'm developing at a young age is a tremendous advantage at some point. In your path along, like going down the legal to be an attorney, you have to kind of specify uh, what you want to specialize in. What what was that like for you? Was there a moment that clicked that you wanted to do like finance law or, or something, or like what was that experience like? Yeah, interesting. So i I always knew that I wanted to do big law, right? If I'm going to do it, I want to do it with the best of the best. And big law is where, you know, at least objectively, and now that I've done it subjectively, believe that the best of the best. Again, going back to my background, I didn't go to Harvard. I didn't go to Yale. So really, 
I considered myself for the most part, at least during school, a gun for hire. I, I would have probably, because I, because I didn't know, right. So, you know, again, I had never met a, another attorney until I went to law school uh, and I met my professors. <laughs> I didn't know what, what it would be like to be a transactional attorney. I didn't know what it would be like to be a litigator. I just knew that the same skills that are app are, are applicable to both. So I didn't care. I just wanted a job in big law and, and wherever the opening was, I was willing to uh, mold myself to that at least in the beginning, right? right? Because once you're in, then you start having more opportunities. It's all about creating more opportunities. Right. I just wanted to get into the group, uh, into into that caliber of, of attorneys. And then just, if I didn't like something, I could then pivot. So just uh, just to finish that off, I started my career as an energy energy law attorney at Cadwalder. Oh, wow. So energy law, is, is there a specific, <laughs> you have to forgive me on this, but is there a specific division of law that focuses on like different types of energy? Well, very much so. A highly, highly regulated industry. And and uh, what's what's important to, I guess, understand is that, you know, when you're in big law, people are paying uh, a lot of money for every one of your hours. So nobody wants to hire a generalist, right? Because it's like, you cannot be great at every piece of law. No, you have right. to specialize. Uh, energy law is very specialized. Luckily for me, I was within an energy practice but even the energy practice was broken down into different groups. You had the regulatory, uh, you had the compliance, and then you had the enforcement. Okay. Uh, so I was in the enforcement group, which means that I was representing traders, institutions, uh, in investigations or inquiries before the government, which which translates very well to what I do now. Wow, that's that's incredible. Yeah, you're just making my mind go crazy right now. I had no idea that that was it broke down that much. And I mean, it makes sense though. When you say big law, you mean like like corporate, like working with like larger corporations, larger industries. Uh, big, big law meaning the top top uh, fifty to one hundred law firms in, in the world. Gotcha. They're all, they're all kind of grouped together. They're the AM Law One Hundred. So that's that's a group. They all kind of uh, are standardized with how much they pay. Kind of kind of like their prestige. Uh, it's like, you know, it's going like going to a T14 undergrad, right? So, uh, right. or law school, it's that group. So big law is the AM law 100. Right. And so you liked working in the energy field and energy law. So I st- when I started, I would have, I, w- I would have done bankruptcy, I, whatever it was that got me into big law, because at the, at the end of the day, I didn't have a background in law. I didn't really have, I, I didn't know, understand what it meant to be an attorney. So when I started, uh, what I realized is like, I don't necessarily have an affinity for energy law, but I do like representing clients against the government. Okay. Right? It's, I do like that kind of interaction where it's a lot of procedure, uh, a lot of tactical uh, moves, a lot of understanding what the parameters of the government's uh, jurisdiction or the, their power, where that stops so that I can, you can appropriately push back while also maintaining a very good repertoire with the government so as to not create this animosity and make them want to come at you harder. I mean, it's music to my ears is conferring communication, but I can imagine there's a lot that goes into that. It's like a fine line that you have to, to walk. But yeah, I, I guess I just assumed that because you clearly enjoy what you're doing now and that law, like you said, it kind of aligned with, it almost prepared you or gave you some like, trajectory into where you are now. thought there'd be some components that you kind of took a shine to. 
So sitting there with a client, going through all of their emails with, that are pertinent to that investigation, reading them from the perspective of the government, because the government's going to get these if we produce them, they're not privileged, and thinking about what is the government going to think uh, about these messages and how do I then convey that message to the individual that drafted these messages such that they understand where the government's coming from and can explain themselves so to alleviate the government's concern. Fascinating. And, and parts of that, that job is close to what you do now at Parallels? Oh, it's, it's exactly, it, 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 was, it was the smoothest transition that I could have, I could have had because again, in order to represent anybody before, in, in, whether it be in litigation or an in, in investigation with, uh, against the regulator, you have to one, understand the regulation. What exactly do, should have been done or needs to be have done? Uh, what are your requirements? And then you have to, you know, then figure out what was the conduct uh, that was done, and then try to, you know, put it all in a ball and explain to the regulator this was done. Now, how does that translate to the crypto space? There's a ton of gray area in the crypto space. The laws uh, as written, weren't, they were written, most of them were written before the internet, let alone this new <laughs> uh, phenomenon that is distributed ledger technology and the metaverse and all this stuff. So there's tons of gray space. So my job is to try to understand where the regulator would be coming from as, as based on the statutes as they're written, what their thought process is, and then try to get my company or my client to comply with that uh, requirement as best as possible, even though it's not clear, and then make it such that the company is doing the best that it can, such that the government wants to, doesn't want to go after my company because it's like a white knight as compared to others that are more clearly violating the law. Wow, that I'm sure there's a lot more that goes into that than what you you just surmised for us. Uh, yeah, do, I don't do, sleep. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. It sounds like it's <laughs> it sounds like it's a lot to keep on the ball. I mean, from what I understand, crypto is a, a very fast changing industry. So you must have are policies still changing? Are they still in flux, George? Uh, well, it depends on who you ask. Okay. So if you ask the regulator, they would say it's very clear, and those who say that they don't have clarity. Are, are just trying to pull the wool over uh, everybody. I think the accepted position is that they are changing. They, they need to change because, like I said, these regulations were not designed to address what's currently happening in this market. So they're constantly changing and it's the interpretations are changing, the arguments are changing and they're developing. The good thing is that, relatively speaking, everything, the laws change slowly. Mm -hmm. So in, in incrementally, you, you, it's very rarely would you see, if ever, a government entity taking this very novel, extreme position to, to a certain uh, subject area. Instead, they take very small, methodical, incremental steps towards their goal. Uh, and once you know where they are and how they got there, you can predict to a certain extent who their next targets are. Because with every case that they bring or every settlement that they put out, they're letting they're putting the market on notice. This this conduct is now cl clearly wrong, right? So, but then the next one they build on that. They build on that.
the minute that they lose one, it sets them back a lot, which is why they don't take three steps ahead, right? It's half a step, half a step, half a step, very methodical. Interesting. Now, do you find, again, I'm kind of going off script here because another question sparked to mind. Do you find that part of your job, or maybe it's advantageous to your position to predict or to kind of try to anticipate what the next regulation will be so that you you can position your organization more effectively? Part of it is that, right? So there's things that are happening. Like I said, a lot of our what we do, it sits in this gray space. This, and we sit clearly with, within ambiguity. And when the regulator indicates that they're focused on something, they really are. Think about it. It's a very big machine mm-hmm. that the regulator is, is, is driving. So when they tell you what they're looking at, you got to understand they have to like take this very wide turn slowly. Right. And focus. So once that starts happening, then I have to really focus on that and say, hey, are we now going to be in that line of sight? If so, which I should have, which normally I would have already done, right? It's like, you know, you do this all in the development of the product and the company. Mm-hmm. Uh, you would have already thought about this, but then once they're, you can't, you can't address everything uh, beforehand and you hope that you're doing it right, at least right enough. But once you get into their line of sight, you have to make clean everything up, make sure that you're ready for this to defend your position if you have to, if it comes to that. That sounds intense, but I'm sure, like you said, if you put enough planning into it in the beginning, you don't have to do too much pivoting later on or you know, kind of putting out fires, et cetera, repairing. Maybe that's the whole, but in this space, the, the thing that's interesting, it always keeps me on my toes is that there are so many regulators. It's not just that we're focused on one regulator. <laughs> Every regulator has their, uh, their toes in the, in, the, in the sand here. So you got to keep your head on a swivel over there. That's right. That's right. It's like, so I started this whole conversation saying big law trains you to be a specialist. And this is one area where you have to be a generalist. You have to know you know, you have to know the securities laws, the commodities laws, uh, some tax law. You have to know financial laws, banking laws. Uh, you have to know them all because digital assets are the, this amorphous asset that the IRS considers property. The Securities Exchange Commission generally considers securities. The Commodities Futures Trading Commission considers commodities. The you know FinCEN and Treasury considers it money. It's you know, so you have to be able to address them all. Yeah, that's that's excellent. Thank you for for sharing that insight. I'm sure I know myself for a fact, and I'm sure some of our listeners love that view behind the curtain for the uh, what legal does regarding crypto. Question for you uh, individually, George. Obviously, as an attorney, communication and really all forms of communication are crucial. Can you think of a time, or can you tell us about an experience you had when? Uh, re- communication went really well or communication went really poorly, I guess, conversely, whatever springs to mind first. I think, yeah, so I had this one, uh, this one client that was being investigated by the SEC up to determine whether or not their token, their digital asset was a security. And we prepared this presentation. Uh, we went before the staffer and we're, presenting the presentation and it's 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 at a time where there were the sec had a separate case with substantially the same facts as my client where the sec you know was was taking the position that those facts 
equals an investment contract, therefore a securities offering that should have been registered. Here I am presenting with very significant, significantly the same facts, but I was highlighting what was done to alleviate those concerns a lot. And during the presentation, I remember the staff were saying, oh, well, this looks like just a regular commodity sale. And at that point, I packed my bag and just stopped talking, <laughs> stop, stop, stop selling after yes, right? So that was, I, I very, very rarely does that happen. But when you hear that, that was amazing. And then we received a declination of pursuit charges, a written declination of pursuit charges from the SEC in a crypto case with substantially the same facts as a case that they were arguing in court. To me, that was like one of the pinnacles of my career. Wow. Was it a miss, a different interpretation? Like both sides saw the facts, but they interpret it differently? I think that's it, right? So if, if we're dealing in gray, it, it, that means that it, the situation could be viewed from two different lenses. And we just convinced them that, to view it from the lens that was most beneficial to us. Wow. Was there any any technique or is there anything that you, that you remember mentioning that you thought like, wow, we really did a good job? Like any, any, uh, any tips you could share? Sure. I think what really made the difference was understanding what specifically this staffer, what initiated the investigation, mm. what this staffer was looking into and giving him enough meat to be able to explain to his superiors that there's nothing, there's nothing here, right? You can scream at him all you want with facts and saying all these arguments, but at the end of the day, he has to report to somebody who's going to press him on what the purpose of the investigation is. So if you don't give him what he needs or her, what they need, then they're not going to dismiss your case. They're not going to let it go. So that understanding where he was coming from, or in this case, I'm I'm saying he, because it was a he, Mm -hmm. Uh, understanding where he was coming from made all the difference. Yeah, that's a great point you bring up. And a lot of people overlook that. They think about it as just the individual, right? But when you said, when you look at that individual, then they can't just take, you know, to their boss, oh, well, they convinced me. The response is going to be like, how? What did they say? Right? So right. You have to put it on a, on a silver platter so that they can deliver it upwards. That's awesome. Oh, well, congratulations. I'm glad that was a, a highlight, the pinnacle of your career so far. Well, I appreciate it. And one of the frustrating parts of being in litigation is that normally you don't get to talk about it. So I couldn't, nobody really knows about it. And I can't give you the names of the client or anything like that, because uh, when you win like this, it, the best part is that nobody hears about it. <laughs> unlike, unlike, unlike in transactional law, where when you do $40 billion purchase or M&A, everybody hears about it. It's reported on everywhere. It's like great for your career. Uh, this was another thing that I didn't realize coming into the industry, right? Yeah, sure. The, the whole it seems like the whole industry from the, your time or your whole career trajectory from the time in energy to now, it has been like almost nonstop learning. Like you said, you've had to be on your toes, always learning new th- new techniques or new regulations. I mean, it must prepare you for a lot of circumstances. That's right. Yeah. But to say I've been on my toes for a while is definitely the understatement of the year. It's, it really is. You just have to be, had to have your head on a swivel and just think strategically because at the end of the day, I, I'm not really just a gun for hire, right? I really do believe in the industry that I'm, I, I'm in. I do believe in the Hedera Hashgraph network and what the mission for the HBAR Foundation is. But I also know that 
we have skeptics out there and we have skeptics in as regulators, people that can really set us back, put us out of business and really cause some damage. But I also understand where they're coming from. It's not that they're bad guys looking to do that. They have their own mission statement, right? And Mm -hmm. it's my job to make it so that they can do their job while we get to continue to do what we're doing and innovating and creating value and creating and solving problems. Right. That's a good way to look at it, actually. You know, like they're, they're out for their interests, like we're out for our interests. And if we can find a win-win or if we, like, that's pretty much what, what you're tasked with doing all the time is finding out how to, to find the common ground or find a way to operate while keeping everyone happy. And yeah, no, nobody, nobody wins when it becomes adversarial, right? None of this is personal. Everybody's just trying to do their job. And as long as you're not outright violating the law and you're really you're trying to comply as much as you can with what you're given, I find that the regulator is actually fairly reasonable when it comes to that. Now, that's a big statement, and I'm probably going to regret that. (laughs) (laughs) But for for based on my experience, I find that the regulators are generally very much trying to do their job and trying to either protect investors, trying to make sure nobody's violating the law, make sure that everybody's being treated equally within the same industry, doing the same kind of things. I do have, I have found some regulators that are more zealous than others and do seem to take the case personally, especially the longer it goes on. Now we're talking years and it's like most of this this person's career now is riding on this case because of the amount of resources that they have expended. Uh-huh. So when you when you're when you're dealing with a case that long for that much time, it starts changing a little bit because it and it becomes a little bit more frustrating because even when it it's now we're entrenched in our sides. Like we have talked ad nauseum about this issue. This is where we're coming from and we're trying to be reasonable. We don't agree with you. Fine. Let's go higher up or let's litigate i hadn't considered that no that's okay that's that's a great that's a great point too because people like you say get entrenched they're like pot committed at that point because then if they pull if they make a deal or they submit or whatever the terminology is they tap out early then it looks like well you wasted a year of our time and resources for not you could have tapped out a year ago type of thing you didn't have the foresight to right yeah first of all i love the the poker reference uh (laughs) but yes Yes, I mean, to a certain extent, yeah, this is when you've been conducting an investigation of a company for two years, and I'm talking from experience here, like I had one that went on for two and a half years, my client paid upwards of $4 million just responding to the investigation, producing documents, providing testimony, all before it became even a case, it didn't, it eventually, the SEC eventually dropped the case, but it wasn't until two and a half years of time, distractions from the business, a, a, a significant amount of money expended, a lot of energy and a lot of exposure, right? Right. Yeah. Like that makes you, yeah, no one wins when it becomes a hundred percent. It's just a battle of attrition. And, and do you want to go, you know, how, how deep are your pockets? Like how much time do you, how much cash do you have to burn on this? That's, That's right. Point. That's right. All right. So we are the professionally speaking podcast here, George. So I got to ask you a little bit about communication and especially in your role now, it seems like you're communicating with multiple parties and multiple fronts on probably a very uh, wide array of issues. What would you say is an effective communication strategy that you use regularly or 
Yeah, I think one thing that I really focus on when I'm doing any kind of communication, whether it be written or verbal, is to really think through what the listener, the reader, what they are looking to get out of the message, but also what I'm trying to convey to them, which may not always be the same thing, but you should probably try to add a little bit of what they're trying to get out of it, included with a little bit of what you're trying to make them get out of it. when you do that, it, it makes you come off as relatable, uh, persuasive, and as if you're not wasting people's time. Along with that, I try to make my arguments cogent and succinct. Don't be verbose. The more you speak, the more people tend to think you're lying, or the more you, you get lost, the, the more watered down your argument becomes, especially when you, you ever find yourself making a really good point and you have and you see everybody just nodding along with you and you know you've got them and then you just add that one additional sentence where all of a sudden you've lost the room and it's like oh man if i had just stopped when everybody was nodding this would have been a perfect win but now i've got head shaking mm-hmm. and it's like oh i didn't even care about that point but now i i have to undo that point and it's like ah oh, i just got myself in control because i spoke too much right so just know what you're trying to convey say what you got to say and stop mm. That's good. That, that's great advice. I, and it's challenging to do, but yeah, try to keep in mind what are their interests? What, what do they value? What do they want out of this? And at the same time, what do you want? And that signals to them a little bit of like, like you consider that you're considerate and you're not just you know, out for your own self-interest. That, you probably came upon that a lot early on in your career, I'd imagine. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, every single step of my career, it's been that way because not only do I have to deal with the client that I'm representing before the government, which as you can imagine, always, and let me just walk that back a little bit, 99.9% of the time thinks that the government is being super invasive. They did nothing wrong. And this is BS. It's like costing them so much money. They're being targeted. They're being discriminated against. And then on the other side, I've got the government saying, "We're this is a legitimate investigation. We need to review this. So I have to be in the middle and try to convince my client not to call the client a bunch of bad names in front <laughs> of them and to comply to the extent required by the law mm-hmm. and, and by the strategy. And then I also have to convince the government that, hey, look, I understand why you thought that there might have been a rule violation here. But look, actually, here's what the real explanation is. Mm-hmm. I'm imagining sometimes these things get heated. So you probably keeping a cool head is probably another advantage that you have there. Right. Uh, but I will say I was always too junior to get, to get heated. Although in my mind, I was, I was saying some things, but uh, <laughs> one of my favorite moments was when I was uh, working on that, actually that same case that I mentioned that was like two and a half years. And it's like the, the regulator, the staffer was just, they were entrenched, right? They weren't, they weren't budging. And we brought in one of our older partners that was the head of her division at one time. And I, he was so impatient with her at this point where it, it, he, he just kind of laid, said the things that were, I kept saying in my head out loud, but just in a ruder way. And I was like, when I'm 40 years in this industry and have this much experience and this much weight behind everything that I say, I can't wait to do that. But it wasn't my role at the point at that time. Uh, so I was just so happy to be working with somebody that could actually do that. 
<laughs> that was that was vivid. I, I could have envisioned that happening before my eyes as you were telling it. Well, hey, like, yeah, just you know, a little bit more insight. We're, we're in this deposition. It's like, well, testimony. And it's like go, coming on eight hours before the before the testimony had started. My my client had a flight to catch. And we set the time, right? And it was well within the time frame that they had, just that we couldn't go over. So the the staffer goes into like a new line of questioning when it's like five minutes left. And the partner goes, we've got five minutes. We don't have time for this line of questioning. And so she just continues. And then when there was four minutes, the partner <laughs> the partner goes, we've got four minutes now. Uh, she continues. When it was three minutes, he's like, you've got three minutes. In three minutes, we're picking up our stuff and we're leaving. And he just goes off on a, t- a, a, starts yelling a little bit. But at one minute, we started packing up our stuff and we actually left. And it was, it was intense, but it was, it was just like, wow, this is so cool. And, I, you know, it's like, I forgot all my, uh, I forgot who I was. I was just the fly on the wall. It was, it was very cool. Yeah, I can imagine. That's something that everyone kind of like you see in a movie. Like, you know, like yeah. I can just imagine you being there, you know, just young guy looking around like, uh, is this really happening? I guess we're going. Yeah, I guess we're going. I'm, I'm just like, I'm, I felt like uh, it, it felt like my dad was yelling at me, telling me to get my stuff, pack your stuff I'm going. Right. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I, I'm not questioning anybody. I'm leaving. I'm just like, <laughs> it's awesome. Oh, man. Thanks for sharing that with us, George. Um, I know your time's valuable, so uh, we'll just one last question here to wrap it up. 18-year-old George, if you could go back in a time machine and talk to him, give him one message, what would you tell 18-year-old George, something you wish you knew back then that you know now? When my buddy that told me about crypto the first time tells you about it, (laughs) listen, listen and jump in head first. It's a, yeah, instead I waited like three years to actually get in and it was, it was still early, but it was, it was too late. So just, you know, just go with that friend's, uh, go with that friend's advice. All right, there you have it. George, thank you so much for your time today. I know you're clearly a busy man. You probably have uh, eight more hours of work to do before the day's done today. <laughs> But, but I, yeah. appreciate, I appreciate the time and the distractions. Uh, this has been great. Thanks so much, Ryan. Yeah, for sure. Uh, hopefully, uh, you know, we wish you all the best here and uh, we'll definitely catch you on the flip side. Fantastic. Have a good one. So there you have it, folks. That was George Pesach, Chief Legal Officer at the HBAR Foundation. Before signing off for this episode, my book, The Effective Presenter, The Winning Formula for Business Communication is available on Amazon and anywhere books are found grab a copy, get a copy for a friend, for a colleague, anyone who you think can level up their presentations and realize more success. And until next time, we wish you success in your future speaking endeavors.